Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 4.5, A Spoon Full of Sugar. Last time, we spent our episode looking at the beginning of a changing dynamic between the British and her North American colonies. Britain had a two-tiered problem moving into 1764 when it came to dealing with North America. General security was the first issue. The colonies had grown substantially and were now facing threats from multiple parties. From the recently ousted French in Canada and angry Spanish down in Florida, the British needed to prevent anybody who may want to avenge their losses from the Seven Years' War from doing so. This is to say nothing of the very real risk posed by the native tribes, who are at that very moment in a state of armed rebellion as they wreaked havoc across the western frontiers. The British, desperate to get control over the situation, issued the Proclamation of 1763, attempting to limit colonial expansion to the west of the Appalachians. The British likewise decided that the time was now right to establish a permanent standing army in the colonies, something that they expected that the colonists would help foot the bill for. All of this was occurring simultaneously with a worsening debt crisis empire-wide. Winning the Seven Years' War had been a very expensive endeavor. Questions of colonial security aside, the British had realized as early as 1762 that they needed the colonies to begin paying their fair share. The first move had come in 1762 and was an attempt to shore up colonial smuggling. However, that would never be enough, regardless of how much smuggling they were able to curtail to help to even begin to deal with the problem. What the British really needed was to raise revenue. In 1763, the first major intervention that we see is an attempt to end the issuing of the colony's printed money with the Currency Act. Really, however, the British needed to raise money, and the only way that was ever going to happen was through taxation. The era of salutary neglect was over. This week, we are going to jump back into these same problems for the British, though we will see a different result. With the British needing to raise revenue through taxation, we are going to begin to look at what form those taxes would take. So, we are going to jump in today by first looking at the Sugar Act. And then beginning next time, we are going to spend the next few episodes looking at the Stamp Act and all the considerable fallout that is about to come from it. The Sugar Act is nothing new. The Molasses Act of 1733, the precursor of the Sugar Act, was a duty put in place to prevent the colonies from importing molasses from the French West Indies. The act was protectionist in nature, as it was designed to slow the import of molasses from the West Indies. Molasses was a critical import, especially in New England, as they used it in the production of rum. Despite the impost, nobody really paid any attention to it. The Molasses Act was routinely ignored. In the New England colonies, Nobody even tried to hide the fact that they were just ignoring that the act existed in the first place. This became a more serious concern when the New England colonists failed to stop the practice even in light of the French and Indian War. Suffice it to say, the British were not amused 
that the Americans continued to illegally trade with the French, whom they were actively at war with. Lord Grenville knew that the Molasses Act had been routinely ignored, and that enforcement had never really been taken all that seriously. With the Empire now in need of funds, however, Grenville decided that it was time to enforce the act in a more meaningful manner. Grenville was aware of how unpopular this was going to be, and decided on reaching something of a compromise that he thought would help the colonists swallow what was likely to be a bitter pill. Yes, the British were going to start enforcing their duties on molasses. However, with that in mind, Grenville agreed to reduce the actual tax rate from what had been established in 1733, although smuggling would no longer be overlooked. At least the stated tax was going to be less than what it had been under the original act. The American Duties Act, as it was actually called, did far more than simply change the tax rate on molasses. The colonists coined the more colloquial name, the Sugar Act, as the importation of molasses was central to the complaints regarding the new act. However, the act did a few other things that would rankle more than a few feathers. So let's take a moment and take a tour of just what the American Duties Act, passed in March 1764, did. First, and most famously, it did indeed lower the taxes on the importation of molasses. However, the act took several actions at increasing its own enforceability. New penalties were put in place to put a check on any customs official who was caught looking the other way as molasses was smuggled in. Intentionally allowing smuggling was one thing. However, the act also offered broader protections in the event that a customs officer became a little too overzealous in enforcement. Should they cast too wide a net that swept up innocent people, they were not going to be held personally liable. Being relieved of direct retribution for mistakes would make customs officials far more likely to aggressively enforce the act. This end was accomplished by reducing the power of the individual merchant to sue customs officials for false accusations. Likewise, colonial governors were reminded, via an oath, that they needed to uphold the law. The new laws also enhanced the process of ship captains being required to provide a sealed manifest. These would have to be sealed when leaving port and handed to a customs official upon arrival to ensure that the manifests and the cargo were the same. The American Duties Act would also see a tightening of the screws in the prosecution of alleged smugglers. For a while now, smuggling cases had been landing in vice admiralty courts. We first addressed these courts while talking about Pennsylvania, and then again when discussing piracy. Vice admiralty courts were used to avoid a jury trial and the risk of jury panels that tended to be sympathetic towards the smuggler. Despite this, defendants could often get their cases moved back into colonial courts, where they were afforded one of those often sympathetic juries. The American Duties Act tied up that loose end. Just to be sure that the vice admiralty courts were impossible to tamper with, the Act set up a new court with jurisdiction over all of the colonies to be located in Halifax. In 
Now, if you're sitting there thinking that, Halifax sure seems pretty far away. Well, that was exactly the point. Judges in the small garrison town of Halifax would be immune from any potential public pressure exerted on them by those pesky, sympathetic colonists. Among the more hated provisions of the Act was that there would be a new fine upon import of Madeira, a very popular wine in the colonies. Now, really, the goal here was not to raise revenue. The plan was rather to interrupt the trade between the colonies and the Portuguese, who provided the lion's share of the Madeira to the colonies. By placing a higher tax upon the Portuguese Madeira, as opposed to the British-produced Madeira, the plan was to drive trade back into the hands of the British and away from foreign suppliers. By doling the demand for Madeira through taxation, Grenville and company may have banked on rum, becoming the drink of choice in the American colonies, which would be convenient as it would drive more business and money into the hands of British sugar growers down in the Caribbean. The real brilliance in the American Duties Act was in how it sought to operate. Grenville and company were well aware that imports of French molasses were going to continue, regardless of how they felt about it. However, what they did was figure out that the key to enforcement was to reevaluate the cost-benefit analysis for the colonists. By lowering the tax rate while increasing punishment and enforcement, it made the entire process of smuggling molasses more of a hassle than it was worth. Suddenly, it was easier just to comply with the law, grumbling under one's breath, of course, rather than going through all the work and accepting the substantial risk that came along with smuggling. Wine was not alone either as a specific industry hit hard, as items like lumber would also fall victim to British protectionism. The American Duties Act had wide-ranging effects upon the colonies. As we are going to see later today, there are really two primary complaints here. One complaint is based on the fact that the act directly violated the rights of Englishmen. The colonists lacked representation in Parliament. So serious concerns about Parliament's right, or lack thereof, to pass direct taxes on the colonists in the first place was absolutely in question. However, I'm going to shelve that discussion until later on today, because it really was not the primary angle of attack for the colonists. The immediate outcry over the American Duties Act was far more directly aimed at the economic ramifications. That the real brunt of the complaints here were based on economics should not wholly come as a surprise. Even prior to passing the American Duties Act, the colonial economy was entering a downward trend, something that we've already been talking about before for the last few episodes. The end of the French and Indian War had slowed demand, as there was no longer a reason to produce the products needed to carry on a war. Things like food and, critically, rum, for example, were now in lower demand. A new tax showing up right at that moment that the economy was in decline was never going to be met with rapturous applause. Recall from last time that we had talked about the economic situation in the colonies in the war's aftermath. Everybody, with South Carolina really being the only possible exception, 
was struggling from this depressed economy. This meant that in 1764, right when the British are pushing through the American Duties Act, everybody was busy getting cold sweats over a growing economic crisis. Simply put, the economy is the number one thing on the minds of the colonists, with the possible exception of Pontiac's ongoing rebellion, depending on where they lived. Either way, everybody was feeling the pinch, and the Sugar Act appeared at a moment where few were ready to deal with it. Despite the economic stress that the colonies were facing, the initial response was not one of anger and indignation, but rather confusion and uncertainty. There had been an established order of things prior to the war. Bribes were not seen as scandalous, but were simply a cost of doing business. When it cost less to bribe a customs official as opposed to paying the duty, you paid the bribe and you got on your way. This had been the order of the day for the last several decades, and the sudden change caught the colonists flat-footed. Really, this goes directly to what colonial smuggling looked like prior to the war. This was not people sneaking around at the dead of night, sailing to dark and abandoned docks. Most smugglers simply paid their bribe and got on with their business. Now, though, customs officials were not looking for bribes. They were very eager to enforce the new laws. Colonial assemblies and governors were left with the question of just what they were going to do to respond to all of this. There are a couple of things to consider when it comes to understanding the response. I've already mentioned that there was a division in the responses between those clamoring over economic concerns and those concerned about constitutional repercussions. We will get more into those constitutional concerns in a moment, but mostly, the earliest protests and grievances fell primarily along economic lines. For the colonial governors, they were actually fine with complaints being economic in nature. The majority, though notably not all, of the colonial governors were, in every sense of the term, company guys. In Massachusetts, for example, Governor Francis Bernard was not looking to rock the boat too much. Complaining about a new tax on purely economic grounds was a relatively acceptable, non-offensive petition back to London. In this case, they are complaining about how the new tax will hurt the economy and requesting that Parliament reverse course and repeal the tax on economic grounds. The far more dangerous course of action would be direct challenges to the legality of the tax in the first place. Colonial politics also play heavily into the responses that we see. The governors and assemblies all recognized the power of parliament. They understood that their very charters were in the hands of that parliament. The 1690s were a ways into the rearview mirror by this point. But it isn't as though everybody had forgotten about the tumults over their charters back then. Really, though, the overall response was a bit more muted than one might expect. Was there legitimate outrage over the tax? Oh yeah, absolutely. However, the American duties tax was still rather narrow in scope. 
If you were producing rum yourself, then yeah, you were probably pretty peeved over the new tax. However, for most people, this new act was much ado about nothing. They would not be paying the tax, and while maybe they felt some kind of indignation regarding their rights, it certainly was not enough to spur them into action. In some colonies, such as Rhode Island, there were some more coordinated smuggling operations that popped up, especially around Providence. Although this never became that big of a problem. Likewise, the colonies wrote up their complaints to Parliament, but through rather tepid wording, and without ever exactly going for the proverbial jugular. So, then what was that jugular that the colonists could have struck at? More than simply economics, one of the key questions presented here is those concerning the legality of Parliament passing these taxes in the first place. These questions are going to become some of the most important of the next decade and bring us back to that central question of the role of the colonies in the British Empire. We have been asking this question since back when we were talking about Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia. However, if this had been something existing just under the surface previously, it was now about to move out into the open. Yet, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the official responses were going to be tepid for the most part, with most of the complaints choosing to focus on the economics rather than the constitutional implications of the act. There are a few reasons for this. First, while it existed and is something that we are going to talk about momentarily, there was not a massive groundswell of anger. Certainly nothing like we are going to see in short order from the Stamp Act. Mostly, those who remained unaffected by the act economically simply remained aloof of the constitutional issues. Second, there was a conservatism present amongst the leadership of many of the colonies. Men like Thomas Hutchinson in Massachusetts, for example, understood the implications of raising objections to the right of Parliament to pass the tax and showed a real hesitance to open up that can of worms. In the end, nine colonies would make a formal objection to the Sugar Act. Of those nine, all of them hinted at the fact that Parliament had overstepped. However, only New York and North Carolina explicitly came out and challenged the new duties as being unconstitutional. Other colonies would focus their effort on the rumored prospect of a tax being placed on stamps, with the American Duties Act becoming little more than background noise. Well, the official responses tended to avoid directly calling out the legality of the duty, that is not to say that there were no meaningful objections being made upon these grounds. In Boston, there was a response from the local citizens. Samuel Adams was at this point 42 years old. A Harvard graduate and brewer by trade, he was known to be a talented writer. Adams already was taking issue with the lieutenant governor, Thomas Hutchinson, who also just so happened to be the chief justice of the state's Supreme Court. Adams had taken a decided stance against having a chief justice, also serving as the lieutenant governor and in the assembly. 
In this way, men like Adams and the guy we are going to talk about in a moment, James Otis, were actively interested in getting power away from men like Hutchinson. These internal political battles are going to be playing out over the coming decade, as political opposition to what was seen as the increasingly arbitrary authority of Hutchinson would come to exemplify the grievances of the Massachusetts colonists and the Crown. The introduction of the American Duties Act would help place Adams and company squarely into the very soon-to-be vocal opposition. Well, we are going to be spending a lot of time with Sam Adams. The major voice of discontent would go to another future member of Adams' Sons of Liberty, a group we will more formally introduce next time. This man is James Otis. Born in 1725, Otis was a Harvard-educated lawyer. Otis had an extremely contemptuous relationship with Hutchinson, and through this role, became one of the major orators and writers of the early 1760s. Addressing the American Duties Act, Otis wrote The Rights of the British Colonies Asserted and Proved. Now, before we jump in and look at the work, I want to make a quick point about some of these early writings. While we are going to address the Stamp Act separately, many of these early objections also included grievances over the Stamp Act. The colonists were aware by this point that the Stamp Act was looming off in the distance, and were aware that the only reason it did not go into effect in 1764 is because Parliament had decided to hold off on a tax on stamps for an extra year. Moving back to Otis and the rights of the British colonies, we are first treated to a history lesson. He begins by hearkening back to the Saxons and the tyrannical Normans, flowing nicely into complaints about the former House Stuart. Otis then is careful to stop and clarify that while those old institutions were a problem, the current establishment was righteous and happy. He states, and I'm quoting here, The deliverance under God wrought by the Prince of Orange, afterwards deservedly made King William, was as joyful an event to the colonies as to Great Britain, and some of them steps were taken in his favor as soon as in England. There are a few points to unpack from this. First, on the surface, it is a reminder from Otis that he knows his history. Likewise, it is a reminder to the king that, hey, we supported William III during the Glorious Revolution. It was also a reminder of just how quickly the colonies, specifically Massachusetts, also Maryland, and likely to a lesser degree New York, overthrew the agents of the ousted James II. Of course, we know that a lot of this was a pragmatic response to evicting guys like Edmund Andros and Lord Baltimore. Nevertheless, it was a quick response. Otis would then move on waxing poetically about how much he loved the empire. He wanted to be clear. He was no radical. He was every bit the loyal and devoted British citizen. And... To be clear, this really is not just complete lip service. There was not an independence movement in 1764. At no point during his writing is Otis arguing for something as radical as independence. 
Rather, it is really the opposite. What Otis wants is acknowledgement of their position as rightful British citizens, and, therefore, the rights that come along with being a British citizen. Otis indeed confirmed that he fully acknowledged the sovereignty of Parliament. He goes so far as to state that it is within the power of the Parliament to strip away all of the colonial charters. Again, mentioning that this is not mere hyperbole, considering that the charters had been stripped once before. However, it is here where you really find the crux of the argument being made by Otis. If Parliament should come and strip away all of the charters, what rights would the colonists have left? It would leave them with nothing more than their natural rights. At the very core of everything, these colonists were British citizens, and that if everything was stripped away, their rights as British citizens could never be. Otis would state his main thesis by saying the following. Every British subject born upon the continent of America, or in any other of the British dominions, is by the law of God and nature, by the common law, and by act of parliament, exclusive of all the charters from the crown, entitled to all of the natural, essential, inherent, and inseparable rights of our fellow subjects in Great Britain. Among those rights are the following, which it is humbly conceived no man or body of men, not excepting the Parliament, justly, equitably, and consistently with their own rights and the Constitution can take away. Following this, Otis moves into an explanation of just what those rights were. Among these, Otis stated, echoing John Locke, that taxes were not to be placed on people, without their just consent. Otis recognized that Parliament had the right to levy external taxes on the colony. However, he balked at the right of Parliament, having any control over internal taxation. Here, Otis spoke specifically about the Stamp Act, which was, again, not yet officially in place, but everybody was aware it was coming. After a long discussion about how you should differentiate Ireland from the colonies, as they were a conquered people, Otis returned to the powers of Parliament to issue internal taxes. On this front, Otis maintained that the purpose of government was to protect private property, and that it justly lacked the right to take property without the consent of the person whom the property belonged. Otis argued, therefore, that any direct tax on the colonists by Parliament violated their natural rights as British citizens. Otis would deliver his most memorable and enduring line when he said, But as has been said, there is an infinite difference between that and the exercise of unlimited power and taxation over the dominions, without allowing them a representation. James Otis had just uttered what would become the slogan of the coming fight. No taxation without representation. This line would combine those two competing interests of the colonists, as it highlighted both the economic and constitutional questions being raised. This tract by Otis is not considered to be one of the more elegantly written of its time. 
nor is it considered to be one of the more critical. However, it stands as an early example of rising grievances towards Parliament. There certainly was not an independence movement in 1764, and Otis himself actually addressed this and dismissed the risk that there was an independence movement. The rights of the British colonies, therefore, was not, in terms of what we're going to see in the future, all that inflammatory. Though at this moment, it was a bold assertion. The tract was well-received among certain groups, especially those who sought closer ties to the British and recognition of their rights as British citizens. However, really, little came from the writing. The problem was that, by Otis's own admission, the power to reverse this wrong fell completely into the purview of Parliament. In this manner, what Otis was writing was not an open call for resistance, but a plea to Parliament to reverse their previous findings. Second, even in Massachusetts, Otis was in the opposition party. Complain as he might, he lacked the power or authority to do much of anything about it. Thomas Hutchinson and Francis Bernard were in firm control over the situation, and rather than sending a remonstrance to the House of Commons, championing the constitutional rights of the colonists, the one that they sent focused exclusively on hindrances posed to the trade of the colony. The response to the American Duties Act was surprisingly limited in scope. On the one hand, there was a sense of surprise and confusion that does seem to have taken hold as the colonists debated just how to respond. More pragmatically, a lot of the colonists simply did not care that much about the American Duties Act. They were not personally going to be affected by it, and therefore would not be harmed. Finally, internal politics would help color the responses. However, muted responses or not, it is impossible not to see something happening by the time that we get to 1764. Though it would not be the official response, men like James Otis and Samuel Adams were certainly thinking about the implications of the American Duties Act. Throughout all of the colonies, economic depression had taken over right at the time that in Britain, discussions were being held to figure out how to extract additional revenue from its American colonies. And, while still feeling seemingly unconnected, let's not forget that just a few months prior to the American Duties Act, an armed group of angry colonists had ignored colonial directives, killed a seemingly friendly Indian tribe, and then marched on Philadelphia to let the leadership know just how they felt. The Paxton boys, if nothing else, demonstrate those increasing tensions between the leadership and the colonists during this period. If the limited reach of the American Duties Act had managed to help staunch the response from the colonists, the British would not be so lucky with their next act. Unlike the American Duties Act, the Cummings Stamp Act would be felt far and wide, affecting far more colonists than any tax on molasses ever could. Next time, we are going to begin looking at the Stamp Act and the major ramifications that would stem from it.
The outrage of the colonists would send shockwaves throughout the colonies that would be felt back in London. Until then, I hope that you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time when we look at just how much damage one little stamp can cause. <laughs>